Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to Super Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan, and in this episode, I continue my conversation with my former on-screen daughter, Ruth Gilligan, the down-to-earth high achiever about empathy and how walking in someone else's shoes can take us towards solutions to what ails society. We had a fabulous conversation and flipped from one fascinating topic to the next. We covered quite a range, motherhood and mad cow disease, uh, identity and Irishness, tradition and modernity, integrity, what it means to be a woman, babies and borders. But time and again, we came back to the value of storytelling and empathy. Enjoy. I do want to talk about your impact work, which is pretty incredible. You work for Narrative 4. Do you want to just tell tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, very gladly. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Narrative 4 is an organization that was founded in about 2012, 2013 by the Irish writer Colin McCann, who is kind of a huge hero of mine in terms of his writing. I think he's an incredible, he's my favorite author. And, you know, I kind of love that he... And, you know, is is from also from Dublin, pretty near where I grew up, but writes these books uh, all over the world, different cultures, different portions of history, different little niches of society, um, and he's all about kind of, you know, learning about about others through through stories and through literature. So um, I've always kind of admired his work, but yeah, I found out that he he founded this this organization, um, and basically what Narrative Four does is he uses storytelling to bring together young people from different backgrounds, and crucially to try and foster empathy Um, and they do this through their main kind of way of doing this is through something called the story exchange and basically what that involves is bringing together two groups from different backgrounds maybe different countries or different sides of the tracks or different parts of the same city or whatever Um, and they bring the two groups together and then everyone gets partnered off and in your pairs you would swap a story from your own life so something that's somehow meaningful to you or defines you in some way and then you come back to the group and you tell your partner story back to the group in the first person. So I would say, hi, my name is Sabina. And when I was 16, this thing happened to me and this is how it's felt and it's the impact it's had on me. And you literally kind of imagine your way into your partner story and, and, and quite literally kind of step into their shoes. So it's a really kind of simple methodology, but, you know, narrative for uh, column now lives in the States. So it's, it's, it's predominantly an American organization, but they're now doing this work all over the world, working with kids in, in the U.S. US, but also Mexico and South Africa and Palestine and Israel and Ireland. Um, and I just think it's like a really kind of practical application of, you know, the idea that stories can bring people together and can help us develop empathy and, and learn about the lives of others. So um, when I started my job as an academic myself in 2014, I, I just dropped Narda for an email just to be like, hello, I love the sound of this. Can I get involved or what do I, what do, I do now? 
now. Um, and basically, they were actually, as it happened, about to go to Belfast to do a story exchange between a group of girls from a Protestant school and a group of girls from a, a Catholic school. So they invited me along just to meet them all and then also to watch a story exchange in action. Um, and, you know, the idea sounds great on paper, but to actually see it in practice and, and the impact it had on those girls and, and how they all arrived that morning to Ulster Hall and, and wouldn't even look each other in the eye. And then by the end of the day, how they were all laughing and talking and joking and finding all this common ground was just like so moving that I was like, yeah, I, I want in. Um, and kind of ever since then, I've been working for the organization and doing projects on their behalf in the UK and, and further afield. And I just think, I think they're amazing. I think it's incredible. And I think it's needed more now than ever. I mean, that lack of empathy, you know, it's at the very root of prejudice and stereotyping and a part of how we have sort of divided society, um, you know, uh, along certain lines. <laughs> and I mean, that can go anywhere from dividing males from females, but uh, dividing blacks from white or Catholics from Protestants or, um, you know, people from working class areas from people from middle class areas. And it, it leads to this othering. Um, I, I think you talk about that as well. And, and I feel it strongly sort of even in the area that I'm interested in. I think there's a terrible othering of um, older people you know, calling people the elderly and, and, you know, even how they're talked about in the context at the moment as if they're somehow another species. They're just us when we're older. And it's because we sort of isolate them and it's causing a problem too. At the moment, we, you know, put a lot, an awful lot of older people in nursing homes who, who probably don't want to be there and would rather um, live in the community um, if they had the proper supports there. But it's because people don't get the opportunity to connect. And, you know, once people do connect on a on a human basis, then they start to see commonalities uh, rather than differences. But the problem is society, as we've set it up, um, doesn't allow for that connection in any real or meaningful way. You know, generally when the connection happens, when the two sides, if it is that way, meet, it's usually at a point of conflict. Um, And I think that's getting worse and worse because we have social media. So people don't even get to see each other in real life. And I think if, gosh, if you look at some of the the trolling and comments on on social media, they really could do with a dose of narrative four, you know, just yeah, to, to, no, I agree. to get some empathy. Yeah, it's also worth mentioning that like narrative four actually have a centre now down in Limerick. Um, they do actually, I read about that, that's that the fantastic, um, I think, did you lead, sort of lead that particular project? I read about it I in was, The Guardian. I, mean, I was part of the, yeah, so well, I've, I did a project um, in 2018 between a group of teenagers, I brought a group of teenagers from the UK over to Ireland and we did a story exchange between them which was amazing because as you say talking about a point of conflict it was right around all the height of the Brexit discussions and you know the English were saying all these things about the Irish and the Irish were saying all these things about the English and we were like oh god here we go again so to get those teenagers in a room to just connect as human beings regardless of where they're from and and realizing as you said there was so much common ground was was so timely and and so important and and it's also worth saying that down in Limerick you know they've got a, a permanent site there in Narrative Forest so they run very regular projects and some of the work they do is between older members of the community and um 
transition year students. Oh, excellent. Because actually that was one of the questions I was going to ask you because I, anything that I sort of read about it seemed to be sort of with younger people and that's a critical point to do it. But I think we mustn't sort of give up. I mean, really, we could do it with people of all ages of the community around various different things. I mean, empathy, um, you know, empathy is, is something that it's it's really kind of complex, but it, it's it's so critical and and important. And um, in a way, what's really reassuring, um, you know, about narrative four is, you know, it really does demonstrate and practice how empathy can be learned. And in a very moving way, I mean, really, when you read some of those stories, I, I, you know, on, on these podcast notes, I, I'll, I'll place links to um, Ruth's website and, and she has links out there to some of the projects. They're well worth a visit and a look. Um, and people telling other people's stories um, and being very moved by them as they're telling the story. You see, that's what's wonderful is. And, and I mean, in part, that's the brain. And in part, that's what real acting is about. Ruth, would you agree? It's it's not about pretending. It's about being. Yeah, I agree. And I, I would also extend that, to be honest, also to do with to do with writing and even to do with reading. Like, I think that, you know, when you read a great book and you, you literally step into a character's shoes and you, you feel the texture of their world and their life, like you're suddenly transported to being that person. And that's why I do truly believe that like books and stories can allow you um, to, to develop your empathy in a way that very few things but also importantly as well, um, in your self-awareness, because I, I think that's kind of linked with empathy as well. And it's linked with um, very Western in a way. We're very egocentric in how we view, um, you know, the world and cu- culturally or ethnocentric, really, you know. Um, and part of that is our educational systems, you know, where you're brought up. This is how we do it. You know, this is it, where you're really just taught stuff. Instead, I would rather an educational system that taught us how to think critically and, you know, how to look and examine, um, you know, well, actually, you know, this is our history, but it's written by, you know, <laughs> it's written by us from our perspective. And, um, you know, these are just moral standards, not the only moral standards. Do you know that that these things are all sort of culturally developed? And, and I think that happens. And, and that's part of the problem, you know, when when you eventually... Um, and I mean, the problem is how we respond, not multiculturalism. Multiculturalism is fantastic, but where the the, the conflicts arise is from, uh, you know, people coming from a place that there is only one way, i.e. the way we were brought up and the, you know, the morals and that we have without understanding or even taking a moment to consider that, well, actually, these other people feel the exact same about theirs. And and really, we need to just have more, as, as you said, empathy and and, and from there, you can have greater understanding and where necessary compromise as opposed to conflict. And I think that's what I find so challenging about social media is that um, and also what you sort of see with current world leaders that we some of the current world leaders that we have is and this is around language is where um, it, it's interesting if you do analysis of, of language around conflict around politicians you know, prior to, to great wars or to um, any kind of political 
political conflict, the language becomes very simplistic and it becomes, uh, it's bifurcated. It, it's just us and them. It's black or white. You're with us or you're against us. And there's no nuance and there's no color. Whereas then if you actually analyze language coming up to, for example, where the Berlin Wall came down, where the Iron Curtain came down, those kind of things, or where you actually reach a peace agreement, you see much more color in the language, much more depth, much more understanding. And I guess really what it is, is it's empathy and understanding cultural differences and realizing that the only way forward is through that that depth. And I think, unfortunately, we're reverting at the moment to uh, a more us or them, um, certainly with some leaders that we have. But also, I do think social media um, feeds into that because that seems to be the way on Twitter that, you know, for example, where it can happen, you make a point and then it's like a pylon of people who just disagree. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And, and there was a gorgeous, I mean, it's worth looking up, uh, Obama made an incredible commencement speech in, I think it was 2004, where he talks about uh, this idea. He says a lot of people talk in this country about the federal de- deficit, but actually I think we need to talk about the empathy deficit and our inability to put ourselves in the shoes of the laid off steel worker or the woman who cleans my dorm room or just other people whose experience might be different from ours and our inability to imagine what life must be like for them or crucially what my life would be like if I were them. Um, we've just lost that ability and that, as you say, is responsible for, for so many issues. For so many things. And I think it works both ways. I mean, I think also what I find um, where there's lack of empathy too is that it is um, everything just comes down to economic status. <laughs> now, you know, and people saying, you know, say, oh, yeah, but the, it's all right for you in your position of where you have X amount of money or whatever. And absolutely no empathy for somebody who's famous who maybe have mental health issues. And, and I think that's where you end up with actually somebody like Carolyn Flack, you know, that they're, they're, it's not a human being. And you know what? Hey, she's famous. She has all that stuff and she has the money that goes with it. And so we can say all sorts of things about her and there's not a human being there instead of actually going, you know what, sometimes, and I've said this frequently, sometimes the more money you have, uh, if you're susceptible to depression or anxiety, the greater your depression, because you've got everything that everybody has wished for, you can buy everything you want, but yet you still experience depression, you know, because it's a mental health issue. And it can even be worse because sometimes at least with other people, they're saying, oh, if I only could do that, yeah, <laughs> you know, if I only could have that, there's still sort of an essence of hope. But it is about sort of experiencing three-dimensional people as opposed to sort of cardboard stereotypes. And and that takes me back into your most recent book, The Butcher, The Butchers rather, um, which is a fantastic read and very interesting characters. Although I think when, when um, it, because the context is something that I have never heard of before, it's kind of easy for that to take over, but the characters themselves are are, are, are are really, really fascinating. You want to tell us a little bit about the characters and the, the book itself? Yeah, absolutely. So in a nutshell, the, um, the Butchers is, you know, it's set in the Irish borderlands in 1996 during the BSE crisis. So I seem to be doing nothing but talking at the moment about how there may or may not be some parallels between that period and the research I did and, and the current situation. Um, I think the characters 
are worth mentioning because it's set there's four different points of view in the novel there's a mother and a daughter and a father and a son and the book the book is about many things and one of the things for me that I think it's it's most crucially about is a kind of almost like a turning point in Irish history between Ireland kind of transitioning almost from a pretty old-fashioned nation into something a bit more modern you know 1996 is the year the divorce legislation was in place it's three years after homosexuality was decriminalized the Celtic Tiger is beginning to roar like uh, the troubles are nearly over so it's moving into this new phase into this kind of forward-looking progressive nation Um, but obviously you know the past and uh, the old ways aren't aren't dead just yet so that's why as I said I have these four points of view the 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 mother and daughter and the father and son because it's about different generations and the tensions between those generations and kind of what is passed on between generations and, and what is lost for better or for worse so so those characters were a way for me to kind of examine um the old the old way and the new way um and and those two things rubbing up against each other but also yeah and but also interesting in 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 terms of uh, you know i mean the the particular butchers that you talk about you know i mean it's, it's actually something that i never heard about so it's it's even sort of it's almost it, that is was a hangover from a time way beyond 19 you know way before 1996 i wouldn't have been aware that that kind of thing was was happening yeah so the, i mean the butchers they're like a group of um a group of men who travel around ireland performing this kind of ancient type of cattle slaughter um which you know used to be very common but most people have have stopped believing in but there still are some people who are who are clinging on to this old this old superstition or this kind of old folkloric ritual so again you know there's a lot of folklore in the book because one of the things that really interests me about ireland is that i mean even now uh you know there is a lot of superstition and and folklore and myth and legend that we kind of hold on to even as i said as we are kind of a forward-looking progressive modern country and that tension between um tradition and modernity is kind of fascinating to me so the butchers themselves as a group you know you've got on the one hand you've got them and then on the other hand you've got this kind of very real life you know the BSE crisis the implication that was having on Irish the Irish economy Irish politics um so it's it's kind of fact and fiction it's folklore and and real life political events rubbing up against each other so so yeah there's a lot going on and and very very interesting female characters in it too you know yeah I mean that was really important to me I think there's you know the Irish rural canon has, has a lot of great books. You know, I think someone like McGahern or even the poetry of Patrick Cavanaugh, you know, we've got some really great male writers writing about rural Ireland and life on farms and even in the borderlands. But but I was just really conscious that like there aren't enough of them with female voices and what are the what are the farmers' wives doing? What are they up to and how do they fit into this 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 picture of isolation and transition. Yeah, and I mean, I find that interesting too. I mean, it, it, it's kind of in a way around identity. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So much of what we think, you know, can be influenced by, you know, stories that mightn't even be true, you know. And when that comes to identity, uh, and and I know you're interested in, you know, um, cultural boundaries. Um, and something that fascinates me is like Irishness. What is Irishness? You know, I mean, you know, the whole nation state things is really only a few hundred years old. That's why I always feel we're human before we're anything else. And that I think is where something like empathy is so important, because if you just acknowledge that you're human before you're anything else, then you connect with another human at the level of you both being the same. Whereas if you're an Irish human, then you have history when you look at an English human. If you're a white human, you have history when you look at someone of a, you know, a, a brown human. So um, I think it's very interesting Um funny, you know, across your your recent novels um, and your work with narrative, um, you know, um, obviously your work as an author is to induce empathy. We, ha- you know, your books won't matter, damn, if we don't care about your characters. You know, your work around the narrative is empathy. Um, the, the the identity thing as well. I, I'm, I mean, I know, I think you wrote, um, I don't know whether it was an essay or an article, you know, you know, who knows an Irish Jew? I actually responded going, I do, I do. I actually worked with some. Um uh, I, and I knew them through my acting. Shimmy Marcus is a fabulous uh, director. And then I suppose got to know some of his family, etc. But it kind of is a rarity. But that's another book um, that is on my to be read list. I haven't read it yet, but that's Nine Folds Make a Paper Swan. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that Did was I the previous one. That correctly. Was 2016 came and, and what's fantastic is like, you know, the, I see it's funny. We can't help. Maybe it's just the empathy. I, I, I think sometimes with it's interesting. I, I, I was a counselor for a while for the rape crisis centre. Um, and when I went to study psychology, um, my original driver was to become a clinical psychologist, you know, to treat patients one to one. But through the counselling, um, particularly the Rape Crisis Centre, I realised that I had too much empathy and I could handle my, um, I could access it very easily. And that's probably, I, I think, one thing that I was able to draw on as an actor, um, you know, because it is about, you know, being able to access those feelings very easily. So um, sort of there was a journey there for me in realizing that whilst, you know, counseling individuals on the phone, you know, it was good for them at the time. It wasn't necessarily good for me. And ultimately in the longer term, um, uh, I, I think too much empathy can interfere with um, progress for, you know, in a counseling situation. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, that's a good way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, I learned about myself that that I, I need to make a difference. That's absolutely critical to me. I need to, my work needs to have impact. But what I realized then over time is that I can have that in different ways. It doesn't have to be one-to-one. Initially, I thought I would have it through research. I still do research and I still think that's important. But actually, I found my impact, you know, through my talks, through my animations that I make, through the books, through spreading, um, you know, information and empowering people. They can do whatever they want um, with it afterwards. But um, it comes from sort of the same place. So I think identity is, is, is interesting. And I think that kind of goes back as well with your own identity as you were growing through your 
teenage years, you know, as you as as you grew, your your identity changes. It's not a single thing, and uh, you know that's you, you have a need to write different books now. And I'm sure that will that will change, um, you know, as you go forward as well, um, as you explore, you know, different topics or or face different things in your own life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm already working on number six, and it's something totally different again. So yeah, I like to um, fantastic to jump around. <laughs> you can't share anything about that yet. I know. I mean, I'm kind of happy to. I mean, it's pretty, it's really early days, but um, this is moving actually, ironically, a little bit closer to home again, but it's a, it's a novel about um, a woman who is in her early thirties trying to figure out whether or not she wants to become a mother. Um, ah. And it's jumping around a lot in time with her relationship with her own mother. Um, and also she's an artist. So there's a lot in there about kind of making art, making babies. What's it all about? So, so yeah, very much inspired by. Right. So you'll you have to listen to, I spoke to um, one of my other guests on this podcast is Joanne McNally, the comedian. Ah. And so I spoke to her about that. We met actually um, on a documentary, which, which you might be able to catch on player because it was replayed again um, only about a week or two ago. And it's called Baby Hater. And so Joanne McNally was going through sort of something, you know, similar in, you know, well, do I need to have a baby? Do I have it and have a career? And, you know, she was kind of concerned she didn't have maternal instinct. And I was sort of brought on as the psychologist, you know, or the neuroscientist to give that perspective. And I was sort of saying to her, well, I wouldn't expect you to have maternal instinct till you actually have a baby. It's the drive to have a baby that you're talking about. And that's very different. And that has changed because we now have control over if and when when we have a baby, but as women only up to a certain point. So you have a body clock talking at you and trying to distinguish between whether it's your body clock talking, whether you're having a natural drive um, or whether you feel a societal pressure to be a mother or not. It's a fascinating topic. So you might find actually, we, we chat a little bit about it, um, I think in the podcast, but the documentary um, is of interest. Oh, I definitely and love that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, I have several friends who chose not to have kids, you know, um, and, and that, it, that's a really really, really, and I'm glad you're covering that topic and maybe we'll come back and talk about that um, again, you know, because so many societies define women by motherhood um, in a way and, and a presumption that if you don't have kids, you're either infertile, barren, or, or actually you're a baby hater, if you know what I mean, you know, that you're someone who is somehow that, that means something else, you know, so it's a, it's a really interesting um, topic to explore and I'm sure it will really really um, resonate with lots of people. Well, that's, yeah, that's hope. But it's very strange when you, it's always the way when a new book comes out, you know, I'm kind of knee deep in thinking about and starting on the next one. So part of my brain is thinking about babies and art and what it means to be a woman. And then I go back and I do interviews about the butchers and I'm like, oh yes, mad cow disease. Yes, that's what I need to talk about. So it's quite weird <laughs> flipping between the two and being like, which one am I, which one am I thinking about now? <laughs> I know, I know. Because in the midst of all this, my next book is due on the 30th of April. Oh, lovely. Good. Um, so, um, but that's funny. It's been challenging. You see, it, that's what's interesting too about how you write, you know. I mean, I know a lot of novelists and writers have to do research of sorts, but then some don't, you know, that it, you know, it's very much writing. Um, my writing is always involves a lot of research, and, and um, uh, you know, I could I, I could feel that with you, like with your um, the one about the Irish Jewish population. Um, you did a lot of research to try and you know immerse yourself in that and 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 understand it. So your books are very informed, and and it's I don't know whether it's to do with your academic background that um, or or integrity maybe is what it is that your first few books were very much 
from your own experience, informed by your own experience. But then you move on and, you know, other people's lives interest you and you want to be authentic. And so you do considerable research to understand that. And now now you're sort of coming back to write about something that's um, very relevant in your own life, but you're doing it in a very research focused way. Yeah, that's absolutely it. And I think you're right in identifying those two motivations. I think on the one hand, like the kind of more research based books, as, as you would call them, like I am just part of it comes from curiosity. And I think it is, as you say, an academic background. I love the research portion. I love spending weeks on end in the British Library, rifling through old archives and reading books and, and finding out things that I didn't know about. And I love also going out and interviewing people and, and meeting people and, and learning about their background and their culture and their world, whether that's, as you say, a member of the Irish Jewish community or whether that's a, a farmer who has a, a small cattle farm up in, the, in Monaghan. You know, these I love just chatting to people and learning about their worlds. Um, so part of it is to do with, with just curiosity and, as I said, being a bit of a nerd who likes doing all the research. But then the other side, as you say, is to do with integrity and and trying to get it right and if you are choosing to take that leap to write beyond your personal experience I think you know there are perils and pitfalls and you have to do it in a thoughtful and informed and careful and meticulously researched way so it's um it's kind of a twofold um approach but as I said I I do really really love it yeah well never never use your curiosity and I I I think we could you know along with empathy because I think they kind of are linked you know um you can't create empathetic characters unless you're curious about them and and understand how they they tick really and and that's at the storytelling you know associated with your narrative for that's what it's about it's about being curious about another person and saying well why do you do that what what is it about that what is your story um, and the thing is our entire lives are about stories who we are is just a story that we tell ourselves um, and sometimes that story that we tell ourselves about who we are has been influenced by things that other people have said to us and I think that's very empowering because actually, if you take that time and question your own story, you can change your own futures or even your own past, you know, and kind of revisit it. And um, that's why I think storytelling has survived so long in human culture, human society is because it is a way for us to connect as social beings, but a way for us to to move forward and, and kind of work together. Yeah, I think that's completely true. And I also just want to add that like, and this is not, this is probably a discussion for another day, but I think it's one of the things that in both my most recent novels, I also find that playing out on like a national level. I think the story, especially within the context, you know, you already mentioned the idea of Irishness, what that even means. I think the story that we tell about our country or the stories that we've told about it in the past and, and how even in recent years, we've started to tell a slightly different story. I think that's been, that's so interesting to kind of think about and, and how we kind of, the myths we tell ourselves and then the, you know, kind of unpicking them a little bit and, and acknowledging some things that we've been keeping hidden. And yeah, I think I think it works on a, an, an individual level, but also in a national level as well. Oh, uh, absolutely, absolutely. And national being a word like nationalism and, and sort of teasing that apart. And, and I mean, I think I read in one of your essays, you were talking about, um, uh, don't ask me to remember the title. It, it, it had a word, narratology or something in yeah. it that I kind of went, okay, I have to look that one up. <laughs> but um, I think you mentioned, and I just thought it kind of jumped out at me, that 
you mentioned, I think you quoted from Salman Rushdie and he was talking about the dissolution of borders around the globe um, and, you know, that, that the way we are and the way we live in society, the borders has have dissolved. Now, that was from a, actually really only sort of a few years ago. And actually how our narrative has changed where you have world leaders talking about building up borders. And then we now have, and I'm referring to Trump and Mexico and that type of narrative, but now we're living through, you know, this pandemic and borders have become something else, something entirely different, not about nationalism, not about countries, but about containing a disease. And I'm kind of wondering how that will play out. Yeah. And I, I and also back to the, our discussion about empathy, I think this idea that at the moment we are all literally physically being encouraged to stay separate from one another um, and the kind of potential implications that has on, um, yeah, kind of erecting divisions as opposed to a sense of connection Um potentially scary. Yeah, it's fascinating though, though I think because we are all have to isolate, there's a sense of connection. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that's, yeah, I hope that's correct. Um, you know, we're kind of in the same boat. However, I think it's very, very dangerous territory. And I did a small podcast at one of my booster shots on loneliness. Um, it changes the brain, you know, being isolated from other humans changes how your brain functions. And actually interesting, and I've just realized this now as I'm talking to you, interestingly, what happens when you're isolated from uh, society for whatever reason. Uh, loneliness really is just a, um, it's just a, a warning like hunger to say you need to get connected. Um, however, it becomes chronic. And uh, if it becomes chronic, what happens is um, because your brain sort of realizes that um, uh, we don't do well in isolation, we, you know, there's nobody else in the, in the group to protect you. Um, it doesn't let you go into full deep sleep. It also basically really what happens is your fear centers um, ramp up and you start to see fear where there is none. Um, you also sort of lose some of your social skills and you become um, less empathetic. Oh, there you go. So, yeah, you do. So when you connect with other people, because there's that kind of myth that, you know, when people are socially isolated or, you know, on the edges of society and people sort of say, oh, well, they're an odd one. You know, they're odd anyway. You know, they kind of know social skills. And the research would say that people don't become socially isolated because they've poor social skills. It's when you become isolated and lonely, you lose your social skills, but also you lose that natural empathy where if you and I were speaking face to face, we would be, and I'm doing it here anyway, you know, I'm nodding when you say certain things and I'm kind of smiling in agreement when you say other things. They're very natural, empathetic responses. Um, they're sort of shut down if you've been isolated for a long time because your 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 brain really has you in um, uh, high alert. Uh, oh, you don't know whether you can trust this person. You know, keep your distance. Don't trust what they're saying. And so your empathy goes down. And that's very, very important to remember. And I think it's something that we'll have to work on, um, you know, if and when we do get back to a more regular society is to be very conscious that we are going to be mistrustful um, and less empathetic perhaps than we had been in the past. And I think it's something we should be working on through this, which I think thankfully we have things like Zoom. I loved your book launch. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it online. You had uh, just to explain um, Ruth's, uh, as with many authors, I feel so sorry for so many people working up towards your book launch and then you can't have one. 
but you innovatively had one on Zoom and you had about a hundred people at your book launch, this fabulous screen full of people. It was, I mean, it was actually, I was like, I found it truly quite emotional. Um, it was like, yeah, I mean, we had like a hundred little screens, but there were a few people in each of them. So I think it was, it was more than a hundred faces wow. um, and, it, and all from all over the world, cousins from Abu Dhabi and friends from Australia and pals from California all logged in to, to toast the book and you know I made a little speech and my editor made a little speech and yeah it was really Aww. it was really moving and, and actually what was really moving was afterwards you know lots of people send me nice messages to say congrats blah blah, blah but also to say wow I really enjoyed that and I really needed that like I think yes. feeling part of something communal like obviously having yes. you know you have your chats face on zoom or facetime or whatever with your family members or friends and there might be a couple of you on the screen but the, that idea of being part of I suppose what we would refer to now as a mass gathering um being feeling that kind of air of something communal I think people find really affecting um so I'm so glad that the that the whole occasion was not just beneficial to me but that actually it seemed a lot of people got something out of it which was really lovely. no it is and I, I think we need more and more people doing it and I gave a talk the other night and actually if I have to do it again I'm going to say please can you put some faces screens on the screen so that I feel like I'm actually you know that I'm getting the feedback because that's what I miss actually from my talks is it's not so much the giving the talks but it's the audience to see their faces and and sort of move with that um, but I, I, I think I'm reading a lot online which is the good side of, of these things is that people are connecting and I've been doing it myself connecting via Zoom or whatever that party one is or, or, or whatever app that it is you use. Um, but they're actually connecting with people that maybe they've been meaning to connect with for a while and haven't gone around to do it in person. It's actually easier to do it, you know, to do it from from your home. We had, I had one, I, I mean, I've gone out for drinks with friends and I've even put my makeup on and, and dressed up even though I'm sitting in my living room. Yeah. But like I've met friends, you know, where there are two of them are in London, one in one in the north of Ireland, one in Hoth and myself here in Clontarf and, and you know, had a lovely time. Um, and I think we have to do more of that. I just feel very, very sorry for some of the people who um, aren't online and, and connected in that way. And I think we have to find a way to do that. I think there has to be, you know, someone has to deliver, you know, iPads or something and say, look, you just press that button and you will be connected. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point because I think it's like sometimes we can be a bit, you know, naive to the fact that, oh yeah, the whole world is connected and everyone's got Wi-Fi and, you know, even like I obviously I work at the university and even at the moment they're trying to figure out what to do about students and assignments that are due and the exams in the summer and all of that and yeah we may not even be going back to university in September yeah, that's, you that's know what we're being told as well but yeah. you know and you know the 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 idea that actually we have to work off the assumption that there will be some students who who don't have access to online materials or whatever and I think that's quite sobering because I think you just kind of do slightly live in your kind of you know, first world bubble, Your bubble. and thinking that, yeah. yeah, everyone, this is, thank God this happened in a technological age, but actually for, not everyone has the access to the things that we're talking about. No, so. and, and from my perspective, you know, in the area that I'm kind of working, you know, I'm, I mean, uh, you know, plenty of over 70s are online, but plenty aren't and over 80s and, and they're the ones who have been told, you know, to stay inside and they're actually following the rules probably too, too much. You know, they're not, you know, there's stories of people who haven't spoken to anyone for weeks um, and that's, you know, that's 
that's as likely to kill them as, you know, COVID-19. So we have to find ways to get those people um, connected. So anyway, I should sort of wind this towards a close. One thing that I do say, Ruth, um, and and I ask a a lot of my guests is ask guests whether there is any tips that they would like to share, whether it's from their life experience, um, uh, whether uh, it's around if you wanted to be a writer or if people wanted to get involved in, you know, narrative four or, you know, anything really that you want to say that you'd like to um, that you'd like to share with people. Right. Um, I think my... I think I have two two suggestions to make at this point. Um, the the first is is pretty simple. I would really urge you to just check out narrative com, the number four dot um, com, and to learn about the organisation, what they do. You know that their work is incredible, and as I said, it's spreading all over the world, and it's very active in Ireland and increasingly in the UK. And I think, you know, as Sabina and I have been talking about, so many different people, communities, groups could benefit from from connecting with others. And, and developing their empathy. So I just think get in touch because there, there's, there's ways that you can get involved in the organization and bring them to you. Um, my kind of life mantra, I suppose, and I can't believe I, I'm admitting that I have a life mantra, but in, in general, <laughs> I, my, my, my rule of thumb is just is don't do things by halves. I'm a big believer that if you're going to do something, just throw yourself in 110%. And even if it doesn't work out, you know, I admitted earlier to the book I wrote that never saw the light of day to other things I've tried and failed. You know, I, these are the things that you never hear about with people but I guarantee you every successful person out there has a million failed ventures tucked away in a drawer somewhere but I just think you know I would rather try and fail than to only half-heartedly give it a go and it not work out so I I just I believe in kind of launching myself 110% into everything whether it ends up coming to fruition or not you know and and that's kind of you know I call this podcast super brain because um, it's not about being brainy at all but it's about actually harnessing your brain so you can reach your true potential you know optimize who you are and I, and I think that's really what you're talking about there as well it's just give it your best shot yeah. you know just go for it and and um I I think that's absolutely fantastic advice because the fact of the matter is you know when you are giving something your best shot you're lost in the moment you're doing it and you're enjoying life and even if you do something like as you said you you you, you had that novel that you say never got published but you learn to hear huge amount from it yeah so much and I just think also it's very it's just the best way not to have any regrets looking back because I think you know if you do only give something you know a half-hearted go almost because you're second guessing against the fact that it might not work out you'll never know looking back whether actually if you've given it your all it might have been a success so I just think you know it, it does mean that you're more liable to look back and have have regrets or things that you that didn't you know you didn't pursue 100% whereas if you go for it and it doesn't work out you'll always know well look I tried and it didn't happen but there's nothing more I could have done um, so I just think that's a, a more uh, just a better way to live I suppose Yeah I think and, you know and I, I, I think I think you're so right because um, the second guessing yourself I think sometimes if you just question that why are you second guessing yourself and you often find it. one of my other guests was Hilary Fannin um, the columnist and um, also author but 
um, she kind of said she held on to something that she was told in school at the age of four, you know, um, pretty much you're stupid and you're weak. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, she is an, an Irish Times columnist. Uh, she's written a memoir and her actual, her book. Oh, you have to check it out. Oh, I know. My mother is, she's just finished it and she's supposed to be posting it over to me. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic read. Um, and I can understand why it might resonate with your mother as well. It's kind of, you know, there's that, um, Hillary would be the same age as me too, but I, I, it's a beautifully written book. So I think it will um, resonate with anybody because it's about very real people. Um, but she let that story that she was told as a child influence her for years mm. in the believing that, you know, she, you know, wasn't good enough. And and sometimes that's where the self-limiting thoughts come from or um, from uh, what others might think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who cares? Yeah. Who cares? You're the one who has to live with yourself and you've only got one life. Um, Ruth, it's just been so fantastic to reconnect with you. Um, you've, you're an absolute inspiration what you've achieved uh, already in life just I can't imagine what's going to come next um, I so look forward to it and I will continue following your career like any mother would <laughs> <laughs> oh no, Sabina it's been an absolute joy I can matter to you all day long so thank you so much for having me it's been really really a pleasure Ruth is one to watch, not only as an author and academic, but also as an activist. I have a feeling that she will do great things and continue to have impact. Her work with Narrative 4 is, I think, just the first step towards making a difference on a grand scale. I'll include links to Ruth's website and Narrative 4 in the show notes for this episode. My name is Sabina Brennan and you've been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Subscribe on Acast, Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, if you enjoyed it, rate it, like it and share it. Stay safe. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.